As the functional approach to medicine continues to evolve, we are now witnessing the emergence of a powerful systems-orientated model capable of addressing the healthcare needs of the 21st century. In April 2016, Bioceuticals will be holding the fourth Bioceuticals Research Symposium to provide healthcare professionals with leading, cutting-edge research, highlighting the future of integrative and functional medicine. We've chosen the world's leading functional medicine experts to show you how they integrate the explosion of research with the latest in genetic science, nutrition and metabolic medicine. For more information, please visit the Bioceuticals website at bioceuticals.com.au. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. And joining me all the way from Florida, USA today is Dr. David Perlmutter, who's a board-certified neurologist and fellow of the American College of Nutrition, and who received his MD degree from the University of Miami School of Medicine, where he was awarded the Leonard G. Roundtree Research Award. He's published extensively in peer-reviewed scientific journals, including the Archives of Neurology, Neurosurgery, the Journal of Applied Nutrition, and is a frequent lecturer at symposia sponsored by such medical institutions as Columbia University, Scripps Institute, New York Uni, and Harvard University. He serves as an associate professor at the University of Miami School of Medicine. Dr. Perlmutter, has been interviewed on many nationally syndicated television programs, including 2020, Larry King Live, CNN, Fox News, Fox and Friends, Today Show, Oprah, The Dr. Oz Show, and The CBS Early Show. This is a mouthful. <laughs> he is the recipient of the Linus Pauling Award for his innovative approaches to neurological disorders, and in addition, was awarded the Denim Harmon award for his pioneering work in the application of free radical science to clinical medicine. He's the recipient of the 2006 National Nutritional Foods Association Clinician of the Year Award and was awarded the Humanitarian of the Year Award from the American College of Nutrition in 2010. Dr. Perlmutter is the author of seven books including Grain Brain, the bestseller, The Surprising Truth About Wheat, Carbs and Sugar, your Brain's Silent Killers, and which is now published in 27 countries. His new book, Brain Maker, The Power of Gut Microbes to Heal and Protect Your Brain for Life, is now available nationwide and is a New York Times bestseller as well. And I sincerely welcome you to FX Medicine, David. Well, I am delighted to be with you today. Thanks for having me. David, you've been a hero of mine for many, many years. I've been in, you've never met me, but um, I've known about you for many years um, because you, you're quite famous for being a board certified medico, and yet you have this truly integrative approach to neurological and other, indeed, other diseases. Tell me, how did your history develop? How did you get become interested in functional medicine? It's a, it's a wonderful question, and I, I've been asked that question before, and I, I think the simple answer is I've just wanted more. I think that you know, as a neurologist, we probably have the least amount of tools in our toolbox in terms of helping people, and as I was out in practice doing the neurology thing, I realized that you know, for the most part, 
we were treating symptoms and we weren't treating diseases. We were basically focused on the smoke and ignoring the fire. And I found that to be less than completely satisfactory for me. So I went about exploring causality as it relates to uh, neurologic conditions and realized uh, a couple of decades ago that there are actually some very profound fundamentals across the spectrum of neurodegenerative conditions, whether it's Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, Huntington's disease, and even ALS, and even autism for that matter. Mm -hmm. There is a unifying event going on in each of these seemingly very disparate uh, diseases and disease categories, and that is the role of inflammation. And as I reviewed literature in each of these categories, how intriguing it was for me that here, rather than splitting diseases into finer and finer categories, was a mechanism that transcended the categories that seemed to be a unifying principle, that this mechanism of inflammation, which characterized these neurodegenerative conditions, also was at work in coronary artery disease, in diabetes, uh, and even cancer, not to mention all of the autoimmune conditions that are so prevalent in Western cultures today. So that was a bit of an epiphany for me. And obviously, uh, the time to make the lemonade out of the lemons appeared. With this information, I decided that, you know, uh, what can we do then if, if uh, inflammation is the cornerstone here? What can we do to leverage this information and develop programs to reduce that factor, reduce inflammation, and maybe we'll have an impact on these very devastating conditions? And at that point, we began seeing literature appearing uh, that dietary influence was huge in terms of regulating the set point of inflammation in human physiology, and that factors like food allergy, gluten sensitivity, higher levels of sugar, lower levels of fat, for example, all paved the way for a pro-inflammatory state and would open the door for these very conditions for which many of uh, which we have no treatments even today. Uh, Auk, as you and I have this discussion, we don't have treatments for autism. We don't have any treatment whatsoever from pharmaceuticals dealing with Alzheimer's, Mm. for example. Mm. So when we take a step back and stop asking the question, how are each of these diseases unique, but rather are there commonalities between them all and recognize that indeed there are, that this mechanism of inflammation just expresses itself differently across many parameters, Then we begin to say, okay, if there are general principles here, then perhaps we can make general recommendations to our patients in terms of their lifestyle choices, food, etc., that will reduce this commonality, this inflammation. And that was a bit of a revelation for me, especially recognizing at that point, you know, 25 years ago, that in its infancy, uh, the idea of functional medicine you know, being born out of integrative medicine and holistic medicine was really starting to get its arms around the notion that these lifestyle factors uh, could absolutely be leveraged for a more healthy life based upon reducing that very mechanism, inflammation. And that's how it all happened. I I needed more, and I, I learned about these other ideas and very much became the odd man out. Not to put you on the spot and to follow on from that, 
comment about being the odd man out. How did you handle your colleagues that would say, well, you know, for autism, the standard uh, medical treatment is to give them, you know, SSRIs or maybe an antipsychotic for behaviour disorders. And, you know, for Alzheimer's, you've got selegiline. And if there's inflammation, why don't we just give a steroid? How do you handle your colleagues there? Well, let me, let me just take a step back and indicate that each of those questions that you posed would be answered differently. Uh, but globally, I've always taken uh, the position that um, it's better uh, to lead with the carrot, not the stick. In other words, uh, light the, the single candle as opposed to being derogatory and focus on the darkness. Yeah. You know, uh, people are generally down on what they are not up on. And that said, my mission has been to let people be, get up to speed on understanding these concepts, uh, whether it's to recognize that the, the, the data uh, that's uh, supporting the use of selegiline as an MAO inhibitor uh, in terms of its effectiveness for Alzheimer's has proven categorically that, that it is ineffective, mm. uh, that we know that though um, there is uh, a role of inflammation in Alzheimer's, that actually corticosteroids are profoundly more detrimental because they actually, as do non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, actually in the end amplify the whole cascade of inflammation and are associated with worsening of that condition. So I think it's very important to lead by example and to respond to those queries by example that is steeped in peer-reviewed science. So that's the fallback. You yeah. know, at the end of the day, it's not Perlmutter's opinion, but, you know, my mission is, is to really vet the peer-reviewed journals and present that information that supports the idea that, uh, we've got to move away from the one disease, one drug mentality. I mean, it's a bit Newtonian, and we've really got to embrace the notion that multiple factors conspire to create disease, and therefore multiple clinical considerations must be made if we're going to unravel this mystery. Totally agree. Indeed, we're seeing this change, if you like, from in functional medicine particularly in America, but we're also seeing it in Australia, an evolution, if you like, from being really right at the fringe to somewhere towards the mainstream. And I think it's largely driven by patients wanting more. Um, but how do you see this evolution of functional medicine? It's an excellent question. And I think that, you know, are, are we talking about a, a specific brand of medicine that's called functional medicine or simply the notion of integrating complementary ideas into uh, mainstream medicine. And I think, you know, let's just uh, focus on the latter that, you know, by and large, I think many physicians are recognizing the value of, of uh, evaluation and intervening in terms of lifestyle choices uh, with reference to their patients. Here in the States, uh, I, I think that there are still um, uh, many constraints that keep this approach from becoming more widely accepted, uh, not the least of which are the time constraints on physicians in, in uh, primary care who, you know, really are focused on put-through in terms of seeing as many patients as they possibly can uh, in a given period of time. And that approach does not lend itself well to unraveling mysteries that are underlying a patient's issues. So do you then incorporate the use um, engage the 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 expertise of uh, naturopaths and uh, nutritionists to enhance your practice, then rather than you oh, being everything. I mean, right. Uh, we uh, have full time uh, nutritional counselling. Uh, 
uh, I, you know, I work hand in hand uh, with uh, various other uh, disciplines. So I think that's the only fair and reasonable way of of, uh, of treating the patients. Anything else is really, uh, I think, a bit uh, bombastic to uh, try to convince a patient that I have all the answers. That's that's a disservice to them because I know darn well that I don't. Mm. So I think to offer patients, you know, as much information as comprehensive of an approach as possible is being the best doctor you can be. I think you're going to get on very well with Dr. Mark Donohoe, who's who will be emceeing the 2016 Bioceuticals Symposium at which he'll be speaking because he himself does that. He says, I'm not a herbalist. I've never never studied herbs, so I just you know engage the expertise of those practitioners that I know and trust. Now, um, you'll be expanding on the exciting discovery of Alessio Fasano regarding zonulin and our intake of gluten. Indeed, you've been a long-standing advocate of removing grains like wheat from our diet in your book, Grain Brain. How did you come to realise what was happening with these grass sensitivities in your patients? And, and how prevalent is this issue in neurological diseases that you're seeing in your practice? I'll do my best to answer those questions because <laughs> they're not easy questions. Uh, how I, I came upon the information, I, I won't say that there was an epiphany. There wasn't a date and time when suddenly uh, it became uh, clear to me that, that this was all playing a very critical role. I mean, I think, you know, many of us have been studying um, the, the notion of gut permeability and its relationship to inflammation for a long, long time. I mean, hmm. you know, we've been talking about leaky gut um, for, for decades, for decades yeah. and yet and just now it's becoming... Uh, you know, sort of uh, mainstream people are talking about it. But uh, that said, I, I would, uh, you know, st- coming upon uh, Dr. Fasana's work uh, more recently, I mean, it really has, you know, it's been fairly recent in, in the scheme of things, I think served to um, clarify some issues and I think really helped us understand mechanistically what we were already observing clinically. And you know, I think his his landmark uh, uh, study was called Zonulin and its Regulation of the Intestinal Barrier Function. It was published back in 2011 in Physiological Reviews. And what he dis- what he wrote about was this mechanism that uh, that relates consumption of gluten to the activation of this zonulin pathway that ultimately deconstructs the tight junctions that hold the epithelial cells together in the lining of the gut that then paves the way for increasing this leaky gut uh, scenario, this uh, gut permeability issue. Uh, And frankly, uh, he was uh, actually studying cholera at the time Mm. and learned uh, that cholera is a disease that kills people because they get uh, diarrhea to the extent that they basically dehydrate and die. And the mechanism that he discovered was indeed this zonulin mechanism, whereby uh, there's a challenge uh, that stimulates zonulin production that causes excessive amounts of water to pour from uh, into the gut to sort of dilute out the, the organism, and as such uh, leads to this massive diarrhea. It's the body's attempt to really rid itself of the organism. Uh, but that said, uh, he learned that gluten, uh, specifically uh, gliadin, Moiety uh, stimulates this whole cascade and therefore leads to uh, gut lining uh, disruption. Now, the second 
a question that you posed was the, dealt with the prevalence of this. And I think there are two uh, parts of this question. First, what is the prevalence of the mechanism? And second, how does it relate to anything that we might observe clinically? Mm-hmm. Well, to answer the first question, according to Dr. Fasano, and I've lectured with Dr. Fasano on multiple occasions in the, uh, over the past several years, according to Dr. Fasano, this mechanism is present in all humans, that all humans demonstrate a degree of uh, increased gut permeability when exposed to uh, gluten through this zonulin mechanism. Now, the next part of the question, I think, is a lot more difficult to answer, and that is, so what? What is the uh, clinical manifestation of this increase in gut permeability uh, as it relates to percentages of people? And I don't know that we can as yet answer that question. Uh, To me, uh, I look upon uh, gut permeability as being affected by multiple factors, many straws on the camel's back, and the relationship to uh, gliadin being one of the straws on the camel's back. Uh, by far, in a way, I think the biggest issue that enhances the permeability of the gut are changes in the gut bacteria, uh, dysbiosis, changes in the microbiome, and compromise of those bacteria that are involved with maintenance of the integrity. So species, for example, like Lactobacillus plantarum, and even uh, some of the Clostridia species, the Clostridial cl- uh, clusters, uh, 4 and 14, for example, are intimately involved with regulating and preserving gut wall integrity. So uh, that said, um, those issues that can compromise the gut bacteria, that can threaten the microbiome, like medications, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, uh, proton pump inhibiting acid-blocking drugs, mm. antibiotics, as you mentioned before, corticosteroids, and environmental toxins, xenobiotics, for example, glyphosate, uh, and even chlorination of our drinking water, and even stress through the uh, mechanism involving uh, hypothalamic uh, activation of uh, cortisol. Uh, These things all contribute to destabilizing the gut lining and therefore increasing permeability and augmenting this inflammatory cascade, again, the cornerstone of about every disease that you don't want to get. So uh, it's it's tough to say how many, per, what's the percentage of people have non-celiac gluten sensitivity. But according to Dr. Fasano, everyone is to some degree responding to uh, gluten negatively by having some degree of increased permeability. Uh, this is where my mind's taking me is that, you know, we have to take into account the you know, the basic makeup of the patient. And then we have to look at the number and the type of the insults that they're having to cope with versus their resilience to those those insults. And that's why we see, you know, one person who has, you know, stress medications, including antibiotics and uh, a non, non-celiac wheat sensitivity might get no response to a given diet including wheat, and yet somebody who has exactly those same um, subsets, if you like, um, or antecedents, they respond in a devastating way to their health. And so it's like it's really interesting to me this concept now of personalised medicine and how you react to a diet rather than everyone. 
reacts to a diet. But where I was going to go next is, do you see that any there are any medical diagnoses that stick out? You know, we know celiac disease is an obvious one, but are there any other, particularly neurological diseases that you've come across that really stick out and have this really uh, tight interplay with uh, wheat and, and other grains? Let's, uh, in, in terms of wheat and other grains, I think we need to be very specific. I think you want to ask me the question as it relates to gluten-containing grains. And that said, uh, the answer is yes. I think uh, we've seen an, an incredible uh, uh, plethora of uh, movement disorders that seem to respond to gluten restriction, including uh, facial issues, uh, Tourette syndrome, for example, uh, so that's been really uh, unexpected, but but certainly uh, something that's been described now in the medical literature. Um, there's actually a new uh, report that just came out quite recently that focuses on elevated levels of, ant- of uh, tissue transglutaminase 6 in Lou Gehrig's disease, showing much higher levels of, of tissue transglutaminase, which is, of course, gluten-activated, gliden-activated, uh, corresponding not only not only to uh, Lou Gehrig's disease or amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, but actually even the severity of that situation. So, I think we're we're still at a very early stage. There's a Dr. Marios Hajivasalu uh, in England who's written quite extensively uh, in the journal Lancet uh, on the various clinical manifestations from a neurologic perspective of non-celiac uh, gluten sensitivity. So you know these uh, these studies are just beginning to uh, to to come uh, become available, and I and I think uh, you know we've we've recently published a report of a gentleman with four decades of intractable uh, headache uh, being finally headache free simply by going gluten free. I mean wow. he had all the signs there too. Yeah, uh, he had blood work that confirmed it. So uh, you know we're, we're just uh, learning about this interplay uh, between. Uh, gluten sensitivity, a person's predisposition for gluten sensitivity as determined by their uh, HLA uh, components uh, paving the way, you know, a a genetic uh, issue that paves the way for this uh, gluten sensitivity to happen. So uh, it's a very, very early time. But I think that when we recognize, for example, higher levels of zonulin, during active stages of multiple sclerosis in relapsing and remitting multiple sclerosis, and that those higher levels of zonulin decline as MS comes under control, it really speaks volumes about, for example, that whole zonulin mechanism of Mm. gut permeability. Mm. Again, as was so elegantly um, described by by Dr. Uh, Alessio Fasano. And so um, there's a lot being written. Again, Dr. Hajavaslu published in The Lancet way back five years ago, 2010, in a report that's called Gluten Sensitivity. Uh, I think it's Gluten Sensitivity from Gut to Brain, and really called our attention to this relationship uh, you know, half a decade ago. So the, we've spoken about gluten. What's the role of non-gluten wheat sensitivity, though? Do you think this is a real entity, or do you think it's... Uh... Um, I think that, you know, there are uh, a lot of proteins uh, in a wheat, uh, first of all, that may be, um, uh, may have issues with respect to sensitivity. So, uh, you know, there are uh, gluteomorphins uh, that are, you know, these are, are proteins that actually um, involve a stimulation of certain brain areas um, that uh, may lead to, call it addiction, if you will. Uh, so there are a lot of issues with reference to wheat 
that transcend its uh, the gluten content that are certainly very important. And I think it's also very important um, to recognize um, that um, you know by and large wheat derived foods are very very concentrated powerful sources of carbohydrate uh, and mostly simple carbohydrate these days as wheat becomes so heavily processed. Yeah. But again, there are 23,000 uh, potentially harmful uh, proteins that are found in wheat in and of itself. And, you know, the other issue, at least here in America, uh, that is so important uh, to get your arms around in terms of wheat is, you know, here in America, wheat is not uh, GMO. We do not have a GMO wheat. Hmm. Uh, in fact, uh, it's, you know, aside from the experimental uh, issues, there there really isn't any global production of GMO wheat. But the issue is, therefore, because it's not GMO, then it's not going to be treated, you would think, with uh, glyphosate, the herbicide glyphosate, yep. the active ingredient in Roundup. Yep. The problem with that uh, concept is that nonetheless, even though it's not GMO, uh, farmers are taking to dousing the wheat with glyphosate, this very devastating herbicide, as a desiccant, as a way of ripening or drying out the wheat at the time it is oh, harvested. Really? So wheat does contain significant amounts of glyphosate. Glyphosate threatens the integrity of the gut lining because it challenges the human microbiome. Yeah. Wow. I had no idea that it was used as a ripening agent. Well, um, sometimes, you know, something uh, is, uh, it gets vetted in an interview you never knew. Mm. Mm. It's kind of like um, antibiotics being fed to animals as a as a growth agent, so that they can harvest. Well, it's a, it's it's actually a similar issue in many ways. In that, uh, both of these discussions are relevant in terms of the threat to the human microbiome, and therefore the threat it presents to the integrity of our gut lining, which is really pretty much the cornerstone of every chronic degenerative condition that you can name. Now. That said, the World Health Organization has indicated now that the number one category of, of health issues on the planet are chronic degenerative conditions, hmm. not infectious disease. Yeah. First time probably in history. In history, yeah. It's the same World Health Organization that in April of this year, publishing in the journal Lancet, told us that glyphosate should be considered a probable human carcinogen, and they didn't do that lightly. Mm. I remember this. There was a big beat-up in the media, and then, of course, the uh, the uh, uh, quote-unquote authorities came into play to dampen down uh, any any suggestion of um, of any health issue. <laughs> it's very interesting. Well, I mean, uh, you know, it, it's breathtaking. I'm doing a lot of research um, with reference to glyphosate, and, and really, that's the dirty little secret of genetically modified food. Mm that no one seems to really want to get their arms around. I mean, there's all this debate about GMO. Is it good or bad? Is it similar? It's feeding the world that's otherwise going to starve. But the part of the discussion that seems to be left out is that the reason we genetically modify our foods is because it allows farmers to spray weed killer on the food and that's it doesn't right. die. That's exactly right. But that's exactly the, right. The, the part of the connection, the lack of connection, is that people are, are not making this connection between that mentality and the fact that, therefore, the food will contain this herbicide. Mm. Now, here's how the herbicide works, glyphosate. Glyphosate inhibits the, the sixth step in a seven-step process called the shikimate pathway, whereby the plant converts carbohydrates to amino acids. 
So in a way, in the way that the plant is able to build proteins using amino acids, that whole pathway called the shikimate pathway is blocked when the plant is exposed to glyphosate. And in the literature that deals with glyphosate, they make it quite clear that this is only an issue that relates to plants and other organisms like bacteria. It doesn't happen in humans. It doesn't mm. happen in our cells. Well, it doesn't happen in human cells. But guess what? We are 10 times more bacterial cells that's right. than we are human cells. And that said, this is a very relevant discussion as it relates to you and me, because tenfold our cells are going to be affected in this pathway, and then we will reduce our body's ability to make aromatic amino acids like tyrosine and tryptophan, and therefore we will compromise our ability to make uh, neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin based upon being exposed to glyphosate, and make no mistake about it, there are traces of glyphosate residual in virtually every food that's treated with it in the first place. Mm. So this becomes a very clear and present danger. Unfortunately, people are not really aware of it, nor are they talking about it. So therefore, the quote-unquote healthy food and healthy diet that um, we are advocated to eat is now adversely affecting those bacteria which indeed make certain vitamins for us and keep us healthy and protect our gut from other compounds which may be leaking through. So you've got to... Exactly right. I think wow. it's time to take a step back and really look at what it means to, to categorize a so-called healthful diet. Mm. Uh, and I, I think, you know, we're recognizing that there is... Uh, profound importance in voting with your wallet, in other words, buying foods that are not sprayed with poison. I mean, it seems ridiculous that you and I are having a conversation right now about the the safety of poisoning our food yeah. or not. Yeah. That's, that's what it's come down <laughs> that's to. That's exactly right. And it's, it's breathtaking because there are plenty of forces at work who don't want us to have this conversation and who would lead us to believe that it's perfectly fine to poison the very food that we eat and hope for the best. Mm. But when the World Health Organization tells us that this is now a probable human, not possible and not rodent model, but a probable human carcinogen at level group 2A classification, which is very, very strong, we've got to take notice of that. Mm. So going on with your adage that you're well known for, it's calling the belly and the brain and the, the intrinsic link between those neurological systems, what practical effect does avoiding wheat have on not just microbiota, but how does somebody feel and, and how quickly do these symptoms abate? For instance, you mentioned the guy with headaches. How quickly do these symptoms abate when somebody gets off wheat? Is it a slow climb or something that can happen overnight? It's a very good question, and again, I think, uh, as you mentioned earlier, it really depends um, on the individual in terms of how deep into the hole they may be, what are their genetic factors, uh, what are their medications, what are their other lifestyle issues that may need modification as well. So it really depends. First, as a general premise, children recover uh, much more quickly than adults, as you might expect. Yeah. But I, I typically tell people that if they're adherent to not just the gluten-free part of the diet, but the cutting of the carbohydrates, the, re, the removal of other offending agents like their acid-blocking drugs and non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, that they should expect within three weeks to see dramatic changes. Now, 
you know, I've seen it happen in a day or two, and there are certainly plenty of anecdotes that are published on our website where people have had these, you know, that the, suddenly the fog has lifted after a couple of days. That's not as usual as waiting a couple of weeks. So talking now about our daily bread, which is, you know, the mainstay of our Western society, indeed other cultures as well, how hard do you find it to get somebody who has eaten wheat and, and other grains, but mainly wheat, all of their life, how hard is it or, or indeed how easy is it do you find to get them off grains once you explain the issues? You know, I really think it, it depends on how I do my job. How do I present uh, the information so each patient can understand it, uh, no pun intended, but can digest it in a certain way? Hmm. And and there's no, there's, it's not formulaic because it, it, it changes really based on um, the individual patient that you're dealing with in terms of the level of sophistication that you present the data with. Um, and, and, you know, again, leveraging those other lifestyle issues that are important for that person as well. But that said, uh, I, I think that, again, if you identify the factors and if you can get patients to become enthusiastic, um, that most people will stay with it. And, and it's a very self-fulfilling issue because, you know, very quickly as they're feeling better, they want more and more. They're saying, oh, my gosh, it's happening and I, I'm never going back. And you know, you read the posts on our website. Again, people are saying, I wish I would have known this. And there's no going back, and I'm going to stay this way the rest of my life. So um, it really is a very, very self-fulfilling sort of change that, that ultimately gains its own attraction and its own momentum. Yeah. And what other things do you use in your practice? And I know this is like this is a ballpark question, but are there any heroes of supplements, foods, exercise, mindfulness, other things that you might institute, um, instigate in your patients. What sure. are the heroes that you find get the, the greatest effect? <laughs> well, I, I think the biggest, believe it or not, and it's really uh, going to throw you here a little bit, yeah. but I think probably one of the most important uh, interventions that I can make in patients uh, is to get them to begin aerobic exercise. Yeah. Uh, it's it's very very surprising for me uh, the the number of my patients who really don't uh, truly engage in a level of aerobic exercise that is therapeutic. So there are so many advantages to aerobic exercise from changing the microbiome uh, to helping reduce gut permeability to turning on uh, a gene pathway that codes for brain health, uh, growth of new brain cells. Yep. So that's that's a huge uh, a player for us. Uh, I think making people more ketogenic so they're burning more fat and less carbohydrate uh, as a fuel source is a major, a major advantage. I think titrating a person's vitamin D level to uh, mid-range as opposed to just scraping by uh, has proven to be hugely effective. Uh, probiotics are dramatically effective. Uh, going gluten-free uh, is certainly uh, on you know the, the top 10 list. Mm -hmm. And I think Ultimately, looking at a person's diet from an informational perspective is also something that, that I can do uh, for a patient that I think is really very important. What does it mean? It means looking at food not just based upon its uh, assessing its uh, macronutrient content of protein, fat, carbohydrates, and its micronutrient content, but looking more at food in terms of how food serves to inform us. We recognize that food is 
a powerful source of information and has huge what we call epigenetic activity, meaning food changes our DNA expression. Uh, and that's, again, relatively new science. But when we recognize that we can leverage the idea of epigenetics to turn on pathways that will code for increased innate production of antioxidants, that will decrease production of inflammatory cytokines, that will help increase things like glutathione as transferase so we can improve detoxification in the body. When you look upon food in this way, it really helps us create far more uh, powerful uh, lifestyle patterns for people that can really help them uh, reduce inflammation, reduce free radical media stress, and detoxify. So that's kind of a you know point on my side of the ledger that I have to always keep in mind in terms of how we look at diets and how we look at our food recommendations. David, you're going to be one of the keynote speakers at the 2016 Bioceutical Symposium, and I, I for one, can't wait to meet you in person. I'm going to be picking your brains like you wouldn't believe. But <laughs> I hate when people say that. <laughs> I like when people say they want to meet me, but don't pick yeah. on my brain. <laughs> um, tell me what's going to be different about this symposium. What are you going to be teaching practitioners at this event that they can then take away and use as opposed to just another talk from somebody who doesn't like grains? Well, I think I'm just going to give them the same talk I've been given for the past five years. Nothing really new, so they don't have to pay attention. <laughs> um, I think that uh, things are changing very, very rapidly. And, you know, as a matter of fact, the talk that I will give at Scripps Institute uh, uh, next month uh, will be even different from the talks that I'll be giving two months later in Australia because the science is emerging so very quickly yeah. that we have to stay on top of it. And uh, I think that you know the real take-home for the practitioners, uh, at least speaking for myself and certainly seeing uh, what some of the other practitioners are, are planning to present, is about as leading edge as we could make it. And that is uh, you know, really focused on uh, the gut and its permeability issues, how the microbiome is changed by our lifestyle choices, and most importantly, how we can uh, reconstitute, rebuild the microbiome, reduce gut permeability, and the very wide range of, of issues that are related to that that can then be targeted uh, by this approach. So I think that it's a really uh, in incredible time that here we are going to be at a conference when a gastroenterologist, a pediatric gastroenterologist, Dr. Fasano, and a neurologist, myself, for example, are basically saying the same thing. Mm. Who knew we would come to this yeah. place? Yeah. I mean, as it was years ago, we were getting further and further apart. We were becoming super specialized in the latest and greatest in gastroenterology, and here I was off looking at the brain. And what a notion that here we are at a conference, we've come to a time uh, when we are basically saying the same thing. So what the practitioners will get are <laughs> multiple exposures to information about how they can leverage this new paradigm, this new understanding that really uh, the focus for all degenerative conditions is the gut uh, and including neurological conditions that are so prevalent in Western cultures. Dr. David Perlmutter, I cannot wait to meet you in person and to... Well, I'm looking forward to it as well. I'm <laughs> to, to converse with you rather than pick your brain. 
<laughs> there you go. Don't pick my brain. <laughs> Thank you for so much for joining us today and taking us through what can seemingly be a daunting sort of concept about, you know, the neurological interplay with foods and diet. And yet, as you say, there's so many connections um, and so many base players there, like the role of inflammation. So I thank you so much for taking oh, it. It's been my pleasure, and I'm sure looking forward to coming down and visiting with you. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today on FX Medicine, please engage with us and let us know what further topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in contact with us through our website, fxmedicine.com.au, or look for FX Medicine in your favourite social media platform. You can also rate and review us on iTunes, and we'd really like to thank those who have already rated us. It's through your continued support that enables us to bring you current, complex and relevant topics to enhance your practice of natural medicine.